I'll begin taking your seats. It's good to see you all here. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jason Faber. I'm an assistant pastor here at Sovereign Grace Church. And to start tonight off, I just want to thank God for air conditioning, um, especially when it's 106 outside, man. Um, and if this is your first time uh, with us this evening, just want to let you know a little bit about what the format's going to look like. Uh, we're going to break up tonight into two sections. The first section will be me direct teaching to you, and the second section will be uh, you'll have an opportunity to ask questions of myself and of Chad. You can either send that question, those questions in, look at that giant moth up on the screen, can you guys see that? Um, to the phone number that's going to be up here, um, or you can come down here if you're a really brave soul and ask a question on this microphone. Just so you know, we have not had any takers on that, so if you're feeling really brave tonight and you want to tread where few, none have, um, that's an opportunity for you to um, manifest your bravery and courage in front of all these people. Well, let me pray, and then we'll jump into what we're going to talk about tonight. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your gr grace towards us. We're thankful for common grace, um, the, the air that we're breathing in our lungs, the air conditioning that we're currently enjoying, um, the seats that we are sitting in, and Lord, even more than that, we are thankful for um, the saving grace that you have shown us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful um, that you sent um, his spirit to come and change our hearts, that you have drawn us to yourself, and that you have um, redeemed us and saved us, uh, sending Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross and living the perfect life that we could not. And Lord, we, are, we consider ourselves so privileged to be able to be in a relationship with you and live this life um, with you and in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we just pray that as we learn more about the gospel and uh, how that changes the way we live our lives, that we would, we would glorify you, that we would be filled um, with your spirit as your word fills us, and that it would not just penetrate what we're talking about tonight, our intellects, but it would penetrate our very hearts, and that we would be changed tonight as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, before we jump into what we're going to talk about tonight, I want to give you a little overview of where we've been so far uh, since we started talking about marriage. And the first session that we had um, on marriage was we were asked, answering the question, what is a gospel-centered marriage? And we saw that a gospel-centered marriage is a marriage in which um, both spouses realize that in God's grace and mercy, they have been shown covenant faithful love by God through Jesus Christ through Jesus coming and keeping the covenant that we had broken with God. And so as a result of being loved and accepted and justified before the Father, we now want to take that love that he's shown us and we want to show it to each other. We want to let that um, dominate our marriages, this love, and we just want the aroma of our marriages to be one of grace, even as the aroma of our relationship with God is one of grace and not one of law. And we also saw that if we truly understand what marriage is all about, we'll see that marriage is a picture ultimately of God's marriage with his people. And so we want to tell truths um, about God's relationship with his people in the relationship that we have with our spouses. So when we live um, according to God's word in the context of marriage, we're telling truths about God and how he loves his people and how Christ loves the church and vice versa. And when we're not living in accordance with God's word in our marriage, then we're telling lies about God's relationship with his people. So that's when we understand um, the grace of the gospel, it transforms the way that we interact with each other, and um, it, it's, a, it's a culture of grace. Then we asked the question, what are gender roles in a gospel-centered marriage? And we saw that uh, male headship, so a husband's calling, is to be humble and loving and sacrificial in his leading and protecting and providing for his wife. That's what it looks like for a man to exercise headship in his home. He does it at great personal cost to himself. It's not a right that he gets to hold over the members of his family. It's a call of God on his life to lay down his life for his family, even as Jesus did so for the church. Then we... Um, answered the question, what, how do we deal with conflict in a gospel-centered marriage? And I naively thought I could cover that all in one night, 
and quickly found out that I couldn't. So we broke it up into two parts. Last, uh, last week was part one. Tonight we're going to finish up conflict in a gospel-centered marriage with part two. But in part one, we asked the question, when do we need to confront our spouse? When they sin against us, when they um, offend us, when there's an offense that they've committed against us, when do we need um, to confront them? Because we, we, we have two commands in Scripture. On the one hand, in Matthew 18, 15, we have the command to go to your brother when he sins against you. So in other words, we have the command to confront sin. And then on the other hand, in 1 Peter 4, 8, we're told to let love cover a multitude of sins. In other words, in love, we're supposed to overlook the, the sin or the offense that our spouse commits against us. So since we're commanded to do both, when are we supposed to do what? And what we saw was that our default should always be to let love cover a multitude of sins and overlook it because that's what God does for us. That should be our default, to overlook the offenses that our spouses um, commit against us. However, um, there are instances when we shouldn't overlook an offense, where it would be unloving to overlook an offense. And those instances are if we find ourselves unable to overlook the f- a sin or offense that our, that our spouse has committed against us, then we need to address it. We have to. It would be unloving not to. Secondly, if it's doing serious damage to God's reputation, then it would be unloving of us to not confront our spouse um, in their offense against us. Thirdly, if it's doing serious damage to other people, then we need to confront it. We, it's not, it would be unloving of us to overlook it in that instance. And fourthly, we saw that if it's doing serious damage to the offender themselves, either physically or spiritually, um, or in any other case, then we need to love demands that we confront um, our spouse and the offense in that. Because love demands it. It would be unloving if we didn't confront it in those instances. And the second thing that we saw um, last week was that the source of sinful conflict in our lives whatever where in whatever arena we find that in it's it's resulting from our sinful hearts it's resulting from um, sinful desires in our hearts that are then manifesting themselves um, in our words in our actions in our thoughts and in our deeds and we saw that very clearly from James chapter 4 and so tonight what I want to do is I want to conclude our study of conflict by looking at two more essential truths from scripture about how to handle conflict in marriage. Two more essential truths. We're going to look at the motive for repenting, and we're going to look at the motive for forgiving. The motive for repenting and the motive for forgiving. And realize that as the reason we're talking about this is because repentance and forgiveness are at the very heart of the gospel, aren't they? In the gospel, the good news is that Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to come into our hearts, change us, regenerate us, make us a new creation, give us new desires so that we love him and we want to serve him. And so when we um, are not serving him and we are not walking with him and we are not loving him, we want to repent of that. We want to turn away from it. And we also see that God, in his infinite grace and mercy, because of what Jesus has done in taking our sins upon himself on the cross and paying the penalty for our offenses against God and living the perfect life that we could not in our place, God forgives us of our sins. God graciously forgives us the innumerable offenses that we have committed against him. And he forgives um, even the the bent of our hearts um, that want to rebel against him as well. So repentance and forgiveness are at the very heart of the gospel, and we need to understand um, how understanding that helps us deal with conflict in the context of our marriages. And really, I think this is one of the most important talks that we're probably going to have that that has huge um, potential to to transform your marriages. So let's, let's proceed and deal with the first essential truth that we see from Scripture in handling conflict, the motive for repenting the motive for repenting. And quite simply, the motive for repenting is to have a close relationship with God and with our spouses. That's the motive. Think about it. Why do you repent to God when you sin? Is it because he hasn't forgiven you already? No, that's not it because we know that in Christ, on the cross, all our sins were forgiven past, present, and future. So then why do we repent to God? We repent to him 
Not because we're afraid that he's going to abandon us, because his word tells us what? He will never leave us or forsake us. So then why do we repent to God? The reason we repent to God is because when we sin, in that moment, our hearts are turning away from him, and instead, um, they're turning in on themselves, and we're moving towards the world, as James chapter 4 would say. So the reason we repent when we sin against God is because we've turned away from him, and now we need to turn back to him. It's not that he's abandoned us. It's that we've abandoned him. We tried to run away from fellowship with him and have run into sin. And once he graciously opens our eyes and we've seen the truth, our hearts then desire to turn back to him and desire to be near him. And that's incredible to think about, that God wants to be near us. God draws near to us. He desires to be in a close relationship with us. And that's why he commands us to repent. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God commands us to repent so that we will, uh, because he desires to be near us, and he also woos us with the promise that if we do confess, he will forgive us. God doesn't withdraw. God doesn't sulk in it. He doesn't pull back and tell us to do a song and dance to convince us that, that, we're really, that we're really serious before he moves towards us. He tells us if, we're, if we repent of our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and move towards us. So we don't have to fear that he won't receive us back after we repent. And so we want to repent because God wants to be near us and because we want to be near him as well. And that's the same reason why we should repent to our spouses. We should want to repent to our spouses, um, not because we're afraid that they're going to abandon us or stop loving us. We, We should desire to repent towards them when we sin against them because, again, same thing, just as in our relationship with God, when we sin against our spouses, our hearts are turning away from them and they're turning in on themselves. That's what's happening. And so in repentance, we're correcting the misdirection of our hearts by God's grace, which leads to a life that is moving towards God and towards our spouses. Because you see, sin is extremely isolating, isn't it? We saw that in the fall as we've looked at it. When Adam and Eve first sinned against God and God comes and confronts them on it, what do they do? They turn away from God and then they turn away from each other and turn in on themselves and isolate themselves. They want to cover themselves and hide their their shame and their nakedness. And no longer is it this relationship of, of knowing each other freely and openly. So sin is very isolating. It isolates us from God and others because instead of turning out towards them, we sinfully turn in on ourselves. Now that all sounds all well and good, but what does it look like practically? To live that out when we've sinned against our spouses. What does it look like practically? Well, first of all, the first step in repentance when you've sinned against your spouse is we need to do a little self-examination and ask ourselves what it is that our hearts desired so much that we were willing to sin to get it. And the reason we do that is because James 4 tells us that we sin because of the desires of our hearts. And these desires from within reveal that in the flesh, we desire friendship with the world rather than friendship with God. So we want to discern what that desire is so that we can repent intelligently to the Lord. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Um, A fairly embarrassing one for myself uh, because I'm the bad guy in it, but I think that's the only way to to actually share these sorts of things in this context. Um, I think I shared with you guys a little bit last week, as I was preparing my my talk for last week, I wanted to see what Kristen thought about it. And... um, I, I, I wanted to get some positive, some, there, that reveals my heart right there. I wanted some positive feedback. I didn't want any constructive criticism. And so I, I asked her, hey, honey, can you look at this? I want to make sure it's clear, and I want to make sure that it's, it's sound, and she's a, a fantastic person to do that. And so I, I gave it to her, and she started to ask me questions and give me helpful um, feedback and started pushing back on me in a very positive, loving way, but I didn't want any of it. And so I was pushing back on her. 
I, I didn't want her to give me constructive criticism. I wanted praise. I wanted approval of my work. I wanted her to, to be a cheerleader and not really a, um, uh, someone who's helping me actually think these things through. And so in the flesh, that's what I was demanding from Kristen. I was demanding, you give me praise, you give me approval, and if you don't, I'm going to punish you with my words, or I'm going to withdraw, and it really doesn't take much. Kristen can tell outwardly where my heart is at quite easily, and so I was using my actions um, to hurt her for not giving me um, what I wanted. So the first thing I needed to do was figure out what that was, and it was approval, and it was praise. And the next thing that we need to do after we figure out what the, the sinful desire there is, is that we need to repent of that desire before God. Because long before I ever sinned against Kristen, I sinned against God, didn't I? My heart first turned away from him, and then it turned away from her. Listen to how James 4 puts it. Uh, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So I've made myself an enemy of God by, by turning away from him and pursuing friendship with the world and demanding that the world give me what only God could. So I'm committing spiritual adultery here on the Lord is what's happening. So in my case, I had to repent of not trusting that God's acceptance and approval and love was enough for me. I wasn't, I wasn't believing that his grace that the, the truth of the gospel was enough for me, and so now I was seeking it and demanding it from my wife. Instead of resting in his acceptance and approval of me in Jesus and finding my identity there, I was trying to seek that identity by what my wife thought about me and by what she was saying about me. So I needed to repent before the Lord, and then I also, at the same time, not only just repent and turn from that, but I also then needed to exercise faith and rest in the truth that God loves me, God forgives me, God has justified me in Jesus, and that's my identity. So it's both of those, acknowledging the sin and turning from it, and then resting in what he says is true of me, and that he forgives me. And we have to start there. We have to start there when we sin against our spouses, because before we sin against them, we sin against the Lord. And so it's, it has to start there, otherwise we haven't really gotten to the root of what's going on in our hearts, and as a result, we won't really truly be repenting. The next thing we need to do is we need to consider how our spouse must be feeling in the midst of this conflict. We need to think about how our sin has affected them. Do we need to give them more time before we approach them and repent? Do we need to just be patient here? And we need to ask ourselves, how can we love them wisely and considerately in this situation? So again, to return to the example between Kristen and myself, I had to sit back and realize how Kristen must have felt through all of this. How was she feeling? Here I was on the one hand asking for her help, and then in the same breath I was getting frustrated with her because she was actually helping me. So she's probably feeling pretty confused at this point, wondering how she could handle this in the future when I ask her to help me. So I need to understand um, that she feels this way, and I need to tell her that I understand and acknowledge how confusing I was being and take responsibility for that. She's also probably feeling like I didn't value her opinion. That's another way that, that she's feeling, which again, I need to acknowledge that I understand why she would feel that way and that I'm responsible um, for, for that. And by the way, if, if you're not sure, if you're, you have a very non-expressive, hard-to-read sort of spouse, ask them how they're feeling. Ask them how your sin has affected them. And as you do so, this is the hard part, and this is why it has to start with repentance before the Lord and resting in your identity in Him. Don't try to defend yourself as they tell you um, how they're feeling and how you've hurt them. Really seek to understand what they're saying and where they're coming from. Don't spend a whole lot of time on trying to justify yourself. So it's important that we wisely think about how our sin has affected our spouse so that we can intelligently repent and understand them. And the final thing that we need to do is to, is to repent of our sin before our spouse. So all of that was preparation, um, heart work, and then a little interaction with trying to understand 
um, how they're feeling. And now we actually need to repent before our spouse. And there are a couple things you need to keep in mind as you repent before them. First of all, if your kids or other people were around you when you sinned against your spouse, you need to repent to them as well. The general rule here is that your repentance needs to be as public as the sin was. All those affected, all those who observed it, um, you need to repent before them or to them um, directly. Now, in my situation, Kristen was the only one that was present. She was the only one that I sinned against, so I just needed to repent to her. Second of all, don't make excuses for what you did. Don't try to blame your spouse or your kids, or your circumstances, or anything else. You own up to what you did, even if no one else does. That's, that's, you need to come at it with that attitude. The Lord commands me to repent. I want to please him because he loves me, and it's loving of me to repent of my sins before my spouse. So I'm not going to try to justify myself. I'm not going to I'm not gonna try to get them to repent of their sins. Right now, I need to own up. Even if what you did was just 10% of the, the problem, you own up to that 10%. And not, don't blame it on anything or anyone else. And don't get me wrong, it's extremely difficult to do. I remember when Kristen and I first got married, um, I, there, anytime we sinned against each other in the context of a, a conflict in which we, we had sinned against each other, I would, I would take the lead in confessing and repenting of my sin. And I had such a hard time of not, after I'd repented, looking at her and saying, okay, now, uh, you now have the floor. Because I, but what I had to realize was, no, no, that's not, that's not the point here. The point is I need to own up to my sin. And what I found is, is that I, I led by example in that. Um, it, started, it started to, to clue Kristen in and, as to what to do as well. I trained her in that by leading by example. Owning up my responsibility, I'm probably saying that really bad. Did I hear you laugh, love? Anyway, leading by example in what it looks like to keep short accounts and repenting of my sin and I, I think that if you asked her, that was a helpful example to have. Um, so again, God has called me to own up to my sin, whether or not anybody else does. Thirdly, admit as specifically as you can what you did. Don't be vague, but be very specific about how you sinned. Don't just chalk it up to, oh, I was prideful and I'm sorry. Be specific. Your sin was specific. You hurt them in very specific ways. So repent specifically. So in my case, first and foremost, I had to re repent to Kristen of demanding from her praise and approval and punishing her for not giving it to me the way I wanted it. I had to repent that I intentionally, intentionally used my words to hurt her and cut her down because of my sinful heart not getting what it wanted. So that was the heart attitude that I, the specific heart attitude I had to repent of. I also had to repent of my specific actions against Kristen. How I was sighing and rolling my eyes when she would ask a question or suggest something that I already felt like I had covered. So I didn't just repent again of some vague prideful sin, very specifically about the heart attitude and very specifically about the actions that I, I committed against her. Fourthly, Acknowledge that you hurt your spouse. Acknowledge that you hurt them. And again, if you aren't sure how they're feeling in this situation and how you hurt them, ask them. And then as, as, as they tell you, repent for hurting them in that way. Let them know that you understand the pain that you've put them through and that it hurts you that you hurt them. In my case, I was fairly certain of how Kristen was feeling because I've done this to her before. Um, and how I had hurt her, so I let her knew that I understood how she was feeling and that it was wrong for me to hurt her in that way. Fifthly, accept the consequences for your sin. This is a tough one. Accept the consequences for your sin. If you gossiped, do your best to correct it. If you stole, pay the person back. Do your best, whatever it looks like, whatever it takes, to make restitution to the other person, whatever that looks like, given the specific circumstance that you find yourself in. And you know, this isn't something that most of us like to do, is it? We kind of like to use the gospel as an excuse for not having to make restitution, right? Well, I repented of it before the Lord, and I repented of it before my spouse. Now, that should just be the end of it, right? There shouldn't be any consequences to my sin. The reality is there are. 
There are relational um, consequences to every sin that we commit against other people. So if we slandered someone or gossiped about them, it's not just enough to ask for their forgiveness. Now think about this. If, when we gossip and slander, we're robbing someone, robbing an image bearer of God of a rightful reputation that they have. That's what we've robbed them of. And so part of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is making sure that we do our part to restore that rightful reputation. Now, it may be, it, gossip and slander tend to spread like a wildfire, so you're not going to be able to put all those fires out. But what, whatever sources you fed the lies to, you need to go back to them and set the record straight. That's not fun, is it? It's never fun to have to, to eat humble pie and confess to people that this was wrong and you shouldn't have done it. And here's, here's the truth. Let me um, set the record straight. That's what it means to make restitution and accept the consequences for your sin. Now, in my situation, owning up to the consequences of my sin in relationship with Kristen were to realize that the next time I tried to approach her and ask her for feedback on something like this, she was probably, she's probably going to be a little leery. She's not going to probably want to jump in with both feet and just share. She's probably going to be a little scared. And so I need to own up to that consequence that she's probably going to feel that way next time. And I need to commit myself to not being impatient as she struggles through that and to not get frustrated with her. Does that make sense? Because my sin bought and paid for that struggle that she's probably going to experience. Now, that's not an excuse for her to just give way to it and just you know, use it against me and hold it over my head. But as she struggles through that, I need to be patient with her because it's, it's because of my sin that she's experiencing that struggle. Sixthly, commit yourself to taking steps so the sin does not happen again. Practical steps so that this sin does not happen again. And this is just part of true repentance, isn't it? Part of true repentance is I don't want to be a repeat offender. I love you. I love the Lord. And so what, what can I do practically to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Um, and one of the best ways to do that, if you're uncertain what practical steps to take, is to ask the person, now it's not always helpful to do this, but the person you sinned against, ask them, hey, what are some practical steps I can take to make sure that I don't do this to you again? Especially if it's your spouse, it's helpful to ask that so that they can help you think through that. Um, for example, again, in the situation that Kristen and I found ourselves in, one of the things that I talked to Kristen about is that I shouldn't have waited till the last minute to ask her for her input. I should have asked days in advance um, so that I, I, I asked her really close to when I was going to have to come up here and deliver it. And so I was feeling stressed out. Now, it's not an excuse for my sin, but it was a source of temptation. And so to remove that, rather than asking at the last minute, what I told her is, I'm going to get it done earlier and then ask you further along in advance um, so, that, so that I can have some time to think about it and process it rather than feel like I've got to rewrite the whole thing before I, I go and deliver it. That's a, again, that's not going to solve the heart problems, the heart issues and the heart struggles, but that's a practical way that I can make sure um, that I avoid the temptation to sin against her in that way. Lastly, ask them to forgive you, and if they say they need some time, allow them to have it. Allow them to have it. After you ask them to forgive, to forgive you, give them time to process it. And this is so, so, so important because oftentimes what I've seen in my own marriage and what I see in marriage counseling is the, 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 the spouse that was the offender, once they ask for repentance, they want reconciliation right away. Let's rush through the process and let's get right to reconciliation. The problem is that they're, they're leaving behind the spouse that's been offended. They're struggling. They're hurt. They're experiencing pain, and the other spouse is just wanting to rush ahead and, and get to reconciliation. And so the problem with that is, is, is you're not, they're not going to really take you seriously. You're not willing to enter into their suffering and their pain and their struggle and really understand what they're going through. And so you rushing, trying to rush the forgiveness and reconciliation process um, is probably going to cause more damage than it is good. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand why you want to rush the process. I do the same thing, unfortunately. Um, but when we do that, it, it's not helpful. It's not helpful. And we're, we're completely missing our spouse um, 
when we, when we try to rush it. Now, what I'm not talking about is giving in to emotional terrorism, where the person holds every little thing against your head, and it's this long, drawn-out thing, and you need to be able to discern where your spouse is out on that. Don't, don't give way to that, because that can be just as destructive. But I'm talking about when there are legitimate hurts that are felt deeply, and the spouse who committed the sin just wants to, to rush right through it. Now, the reason that I've spent so much time on repentance is because I've seen it done incorrectly all the time. And when it's done incorrectly, it's, it's not helpful to the, the relationship. It's not, it's, it, at the very least, it's certainly not as helpful as it could be. Because every time you sin against each other, it, it's causing damage to the relationship. And you know this, in any area of your life, if you've got a problem or if something's broken, it's better to fix that problem the right way the first time immediately rather than to do shoddy um, patchwork, which can just end up causing even more problems down the road. Address it and do it properly the first time rather than further damaging your relationship by not addressing it um, the right way. And here's, here's the most typical way I see spouses res- uh, repent to each other. Um, so a husband comes home, he's got, had a long day, and uh, he goes into the den, and he's wanting to watch TV, and the wife asks him to help the kids with homework. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with that. He feels like he's been pulling his weight all day long, and he wants to. So they, they have a little exchange, and he ends up yelling at her. So here's typically um, how most husbands would repent in that situation. Honey, I'm sorry for yelling at you. I had a long day at the office. I had to fire somebody. The kids were fighting when I got home. And then when you asked if I could help the kids with their homework, when I just wanted to sit down and watch TV, I lost it. I yelled at you. I'm sorry. Now, is that repentance? That's not repentance, is it? What did he just do? He just blamed his sin on all of his circumstances and everybody else around him. Now, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't be sympathetic towards his rough day. But guess what? His rough day isn't what caused him to yell at his wife. The sinful desires of his heart are what caused him to sin against his wife and yell at her. So here's what repentance um, should have looked like in that situation. And this is kind of long, so you're probably going to laugh at me as I'm saying this. But this is what legitimate biblical repentance looks like. Honey, I repent for my sin against you. I repented before God, and now I need to repent before you. In my heart, I wanted earthly comfort more than anything else. And when you came between me and that comfort, I sinfully yelled at you, seeking to use my words to hurt you, to push you away so that I could get what I want. Instead of resting in the comfort that God promises me and seeking to serve you and the kids, even as God loves and serves me, I sinfully sought to serve myself. I know my yelling hurts you and the kids, and that I need to repent before them as well. I also realize that you're probably going to be afraid to ask me to help the kids with their homework in the future, and if that happens, I want you know, to know that I'm going to strive to be patient through that. And after we're done talking, I'm going to go help the kids with their homework, but will you forgive me for my sin against you? That's, that's intelligent, biblical repentance. That's what it looks like. So the question then becomes, is this how we're repenting to our spouses when we sin against them? Are we consistently engaging in this intelligent repentance? Because honestly, from every marriage counselor that I've read, every marriage book that I've read, every marriage counselor that I've spoken with, they say the number one most important thing to a marriage um, is, is keeping short accounts, is confessing quickly of your sins. It's every time you sin against your spouse, it's like dropping dirty laundry on the ground. And if you don't clean that out, pretty, pretty soon people are uh, tripping over it and people are getting angry about it. And so just as you drop it, pick it back up. Pick up the clutter. Get rid of it um, so that, that your relationship isn't clogged up by all these sins that you have against each other because that's what starts that drift, that drift between couples that we so often see. And that's not a fitting picture of Christ's relationship with the church, is it? God is intimately close to his people, loving them, pursuing them, 
engaging them. And the funny thing about this is you think, well, man, repentance, you really, really, you tell your wife that you used your words to hurt her? That sounds really harsh, man. I mean, doesn't it make her want to push you away and not trust you? Actually, no. When I repent intelligently like this, which I don't always do, and humbly and honestly from a heart that's first repented before the Lord, it actually builds trust in our marriage. Why? Because Kristen sees that I'm saying the same thing about my sin that God does. I'm yielding myself to an authority higher than myself. I am not the authority of our marriage. Jesus is. And so I'm repenting before him and then repenting before you. And so she knows that she can trust me that I know what, when I'm sinning against her, when I'm doing this. So we've talked about what to do when, you're sin, when you sin against your spouse. That's half of the equation. The other half now is what to do when your spouse sins against you and then they repent. Well, how do you handle it when your spouse sins against you and then they repent and ask for forgiveness? In order to do that, let's look at the, the motive for forgiving, the motive for forgiving. And if you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew 18, uh, verses 21 through 35. If you don't have them, I, I'm just going to read it out loud here. But Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter thinks he's being pretty generous here. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. That's, that's more money than you could pay in a lifetime in those days. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell, and then Jason lost his spot. Sometimes the iPads aren't always the most helpful thing. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which was a much, much smaller amount, still significant but smaller, and seizing him began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patient with me, patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so what Jesus teaches us very clearly from this parable is that the motive for forgiving our spouses when they forgive, when they uh, sin against us and then repent is because Jesus has forgiven us an infinite debt. We owed God an infinite debt that we could never pay back because all we had at our disposal was finite resources. And so we had no hope of ever paying that debt back. And that's why God sent Jesus to come, fully God and fully man. Fully God so that he would have infinite resources at his disposal to pay the Father back. And fully man so that he could be a fitting substitute for us and pay the penalty for our sins. And we've been forgiven. Our debts have been cleared and not only have our debts been cleared, but now all the righteousness, all of the rewards that Jesus has earned in his life have now been given to us. So we're not just given a clean slate and then told to earn our way into God's favor. We're, we're given a clean slate and then we're said we have been given 
infinite amount of resources that Jesus has won for us, and now we're in favor with God. That's the relationship that we have with the Father. And so if that's what God has done for you, as, as painful as the, the offenses that people have committed against you, it's never as much as, as, as God has forgiven you, as I have forgiven you. So love them, forgive them when they repent. And don't hold it against them. That's the motive for forgiveness. But this, this parable doesn't just show us that. It also teaches us what Jesus wants us to know about forgiveness. And one of the first things he wants us to be about forgiveness is that it cancels a debt. Forgiveness cancels a debt. And as we all know, anytime a debt is canceled, someone had to pay for it, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Someone's always paying. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is that when we forgive someone when they've sinned against us, we are absorbing the cost of that offense. We're absorbing it. We're not making them pay for it. We're canceling the debt by saying, we'll absorb it. So the point is, forgiveness is always costly. And more often than not, that's why we don't want to forgive people. We want them to have to pay. We don't want to have to pay for it. We don't have to want to have to absorb it. The next thing we see is that forgiveness is a promise. Forgiveness is a threefold promise. It commits to three things. First, forgiveness promises that I will not bring this up this offense again or use it against you. I'm not going to throw this in your face next time we get in a fight and hang it over your head. I'm not going to bring it up to you. Secondly, forgiveness promises that I will not bring up this offense to others in gossip or use it to malign you. I'm not going to use it to, to paint a bad picture of you and, and bring it before other people. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't ever seek appropriate counsel for how to handle an offense against you, but it means that you do so carefully and wisely with special, special attention paid to making sure that you, do, you don't gossip. Lastly, the third thing that forgiveness promises is that I will not bring up this offense to myself and dwell on it. I'm not going to put it on the reel of, of, of the video player in my mind and savor every little detail and just become hardened and bitter and just be filled with anger towards you. I'm not going to give in to resentment. That's, that's what else it promises. The next thing we see from this parable is that refusal to forgive destroys us and ruins our relationship with others. That's what the, the, the servant who's been forgiven the debt, right? He doesn't forgive the other servant. And so he ends up choking him out and destroying the relationship that he had with him. And we do the same thing when we refuse to forgive. We become bitter, angry people who destroy our relationships by making everyone around us pay for their sins and failures. So guess what? There is a cost to be paid when you forgive someone. But you know what? There's an even bigger cost when you don't forgive them. And according to this parable, it's actually an infinite cost. The next thing we see is that forgiveness is both an event and a process. It's both a one-time event and a process. We see this when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive our brothers when they sin against us? What does Jesus say? Not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, while forgiving someone is a one-time event, where I say, I make this promise to you, it's also an ongoing promise and struggle where I say, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit myself to the, this promise of not bringing it up to myself. And it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a fight because you're going to want to focus on it. So it's an event and a process. And it's important for us to realize that because when we're sinned against, we're gonna, and, and then the person repents to us and we forgive them, it's going to be a struggle. We're going to have to fight against it. And if you think that um, forgiveness is just a, a one-time event and then you have all the, the, this struggle where the lack of trust and anger and wanting to take revenge on the person is coming back, all these temptations, you're going to feel guilty and you're going to get worn out. So you need to know and be okay with the fact that it's a process and you need to struggle and fight against it. So we've seen what forgiveness is, but real briefly in closing, let's talk about what forgiveness is not. I think there's a lot of confusion about this. First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I know so many people who feel so guilty that they can't forget the offenses that were done against them. And you know what? One of the most freeing truths is that 
you're probably you may never forget it. That's okay. That's okay. I wish you could I wish that I could take it out of your mind so you wouldn't have all the pain associated with it, but don't feel guilty that you can't forget it. You're not called to forget it. You're called to forgive and absorb the cost of their sin against you. So don't feel guilty about that. The other also forgiveness is not telling the person, "Oh, it's okay." Or it's not a big deal. Don't lie to them. Sin is a big deal. It hurts. Don't try to downplay it. Forgive them. Absorb the pain. But don't tell them that, it, that it's okay and that it's, it's not a big deal. It's, it's going to cost you um, to absorb that pain. And lastly, forgiveness does not leave you as a doormat. It doesn't leave you as a doormat. Some people think that if I forgive this person, I can't forgive them because then it's going to put me in a position where I have to be vulnerable with them and I have to put myself in the same position again and they're going to abuse me and they're going to attack me and they're going to hurt me. That's not what it means. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to put ourselves in a position where it's easy for other people to sin against us. So forgiveness can happen and new boundaries may need to be set up. That's okay. Forgiveness does not leave you as a doormat. It, it still allows you to be able to challenge the other person, person's actions. And if we love them, we're going to be willing to do that. So that's, that concludes um, our dealing with conflict tonight. Let me pray real quick because I went long, and then we'll bring Chad up and do some, some questions and answers. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have forgiven us our sins, our many sins against you. We're thankful that you have um, absorbed that cost um, in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, that all of our offenses against you were placed on him and poured out on him. And we're thankful that that now frees us to be able to forgive others their offenses against us and not worry about how they may sin against us in the future because we know you're going to protect us and that you're going to love us. Lord, help us to learn how to handle these things wisely, to be a people who repent quickly before you and as a result of that are quick to repent when we sin against our spouses and against our loved ones. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace and your love towards us in the gospel and we pray that we would be um, a witness and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in our relationships even as we sin against each other. May we be quick to extend grace and to handle sinful conflict the way that your word has graciously shown us how to. So we love you and ask that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to put up the first question here for you, Jay. And if you guys want to send any questions, the, the text is up there. I'm sure once you start hearing some of these answers, you, you'll probably start asking some, especially if the second question I got. Um, handling conflict. This person says, the motive is to have a close relationship, then why does it have to be serious damage? What do you consider serious? Is this transferable to friendships? If so, is it serious enough that it means you probably won't be friends at a meaningful level with this person? I wonder if conflict is so disliked that relationships are much less than they could be in the Christian community and probably outside the church, too. Go. Was that for me? Yeah, yeah. I was actually reading another text while you were oh, reading okay. that. Well, um, you, you read this one. There you go. Okay. You're the one who made the comment, serious damage. So what do you mean by, why does it, why does it have to be serious damage? What do you consider serious? The... the the part about, is this transferable to friendships? Yes. Okay, yes. so that's easy. That, the, why does it, it's transferable to all relationships, conflicts, so you guys know what he's dealing with is not just marriage. But why does it have to be serious damage, and what do you consider serious? I think serious, um, we talked about this a little bit last, last week, um, <clears throat> causing serious damage, the three things. First and foremost, it doesn't just have to be serious damage. The first one I mentioned was, um, if, it, if it's going to cause... Um, well, I guess it'd still be serious damage to your relationship and that you can't let the sin go. If you can't let the offense go and let love cover a multitude of sins and no matter how hard you try to put it behind you, it keeps popping back up, you, you need to address it with your spouse because those things pile up and it's just, if it's affecting the way you're seeing them and interacting with them and loving them, then you, you need to, to deal with it. So that's the first one. Um, the next one was serious damage um, against other people. If it's physically harming, if it's, if it's uh, uh, verbal abuse, I mean, I don't know how specific you guys are wanting me, if it's sexually abusive, any of these things, it needs to be addressed immediately. You can't, you, love demands that you don't overlook that. Frankly, at that point, it's harmful to the offender themselves, and it's all, it can also be potentially harmful to you 
to your kids and to, and to other people around you. So you can't overlook it there. Um, what, was the, what was the other question that they had th- on there? I think, you know, what you mean by serious. I think your answer, Jay, is helpful. Because just, just to come back to that, you guys understand what he means? The Bible tells us multiple times love covers a multitude of sins. It's the way relationships are. There is no way in the world I'm going to confront my wife or she's going to confront me every time we sin against each other. If that happened, we wouldn't have time to do anything else. Yeah. Right? Okay? Love has to cover multitude of sins. We've got to know that there are some sins that we're going to confront. And those sins are things that are serious enough that they're hurtful and we can't just, I just can't go, okay, well, you know, we'll just go on. There are also sins that become patterns, character patterns that are just continually, that, I, that then have to be addressed. Right. But, you know, I think, I think it's difficult because here's the thing about the wisdom of this. You're going to have to figure out in your own situation what, what that necessarily means. Right. Because there are some people who have a lower tolerance than others. Yep. And there are some people who are overly optimistic, unrealistically optimistic, and that can become a problem because they'll, they'll never confront something in their spouse that's actually bringing harm to their spouse or other people. And then there are the other people who are pessimistic and negative and always see everything, and they're just constantly terrorizing their spouse with, you need to apologize, we need to deal with this, we need to deal with that. And it's just like, good night, can we just like enjoy life at all together, or do we just always have to deal with all our issues? You guys know what I'm talking about? So you have on the, on the spectrum from, let's, let's just put on a smile and pretend like nothing's happening on this extreme, all the way to high drama, yep. okay? Somewhere in the middle, you need to find that that, that place where your love's covering a multitude of sins, but you're also confronting sin that is, that is serious and damaging to relationships in the person. You guys follow me on that? Okay, and I don't know, we don't really can't put a line in the sand on that. I know that would be no. really nice, but that's part of wisdom. It, and that happens in our relationships. I see Jason sin, Jason sees me sin. It happens with all the elders. We see each other sin. There are times when we decide to deal with it and times when we don't. Yep. And there's wisdom calls in making those decisions. Right? And that happens in all your relationships. Same with my kids. I don't discipline my kids every time they sin. I have to make wisdom decisions about when's the best time to do it. If I did, we, again, it would be miserable in my household. Yeah. No kid would want to live there. You guys follow me on that? Okay. All and right. if, you, if you weren't here for last week's, go online and listen to it because it flushes this out a little bit more. Also, to answer your question, is it serious enough that it means you probably won't be friends at a meaningly le- meaningful level with this person? Possibly. Sometimes I think it will mean that. It can, yeah. It doesn't Especially have to. Especially if there's no repentance of dealing with it. Right. Aren't we also supposed to, was that a question you had on there? Yeah, but go ahead and go okay. to this one. Aren't we also supposed to, for, this is great, I'm going to let you deal with this. Aren't oh, yeah. we also supposed to forgive our spouses even when they don't repent? This is a question we get a lot, by the yep. way. What about forgiving people when they don't repent? I can tell you that with re- when it comes to forgiveness, I'm probably asked that question more often than any other question. How do we do this completely and not bring the sin and lack of apology up later? Um, yes, you are to forgive your spouse even when they, they do not repent to you. Now, the way that Scripture talks about that in, I believe it's Luke 17... It says, when, if your brother sins against you, go to him, and if he repents, then forgive him. Now, I think that's speaking about forgiveness at, at the level between, between humans. Does that make sense? The horizontal um, relationship, the horizontal aspect of forgiveness. When my spouse repents, then I can forgive them, and now we have reconciliation in that sense. But in Matthew, is it 6 or 5? I think Matthew, it's Matthew... What, what are you talking about? Well, I'll say Matthew it. Matthew 5, talking about the Lord's Prayer? No, Matthew 5, where it says that if you, if, your brother, if you have a sin against your brother, he has a sin against you, you know, go to him and forgive him Matthew. before you, pre- you know, present your, uh, your sacrifice. Matthew so five. we're told to forgive even if the other person hasn't repented before we, we come and worship. I think that's talking about the vertical aspect of having a heart that says, Lord, I'm willing to forgive. I forgive this person. I'm not going to dwell on their sin. I'm going to love them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue reconciliation with them, um, even though they haven't repented yet at this point. Now, for reconciliation to take place, that horizontal aspect has to be there. So I hope that makes sense. Repentance, you... repentance has to occur for reconciliation to occur. Yeah. You guys understand that? If a spouse cheats on another spouse, you're, you're not going to have reconciliation without repentance. Nope. Even if the spouse says, you know what, I'm not going to be bitter. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm That's not the gonna, forgiveness I'm not at the dwell on bitterness, vertical right? level, yeah. 
You might call that forgive, um, vertical forgiveness, okay? But, but there's no way, we all know this, that reconciliation is going to happen if the, other, if the spouse who offended doesn't say, I was wrong, that was sin, please forgive me. Um, that, it's necessary because if you're going to ask, if I'm your spouse and that happens, if you're going to ask me to absorb that, that debt, which is what I'm going to have to do, then I've got to, and, and then walk forward with you in reconciliation, then I've got to know that you know it's wrong. Yeah. Because we've got to reestablish a basis for trust. So now that doesn't happen in every, again, sort of situation, but, but especially on these more serious issues, um, that's going to have to happen. Yeah. If you want to ask a follow-up on it, you can. Um, up higher, Jim? Lower. Okay. Um, go ahead, Jason. Ask that one. Um, when you and your spouse start to talk after an argument, and they say, I love you so much, so don't mess things up, how can one respond to this kind of statement from a spouse. <laughs> you could respond, that's a really stupid comment. Yeah. <laughs> let's deal with life issues, huh? But no, I, go ahead, Jay. T- tell us what the, what the way to deal with that is. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about what does it actually love, mean to love in this situation. Um, I think I might be tempted to actually respond, well, I'm going to mess things up. So if your love is conditional on that, then we're probably not going to make it super far. I am going to try to love you better, um, but we have to extend grace to one another, um, even as we have received grace from the Lord um, ourselves. So depending on the, the situation and the circumstance, I mean, if, if, Kristen, or if, if Kristen finished an argument and she never would uh, like that, then I, w- I would definitely address that with her and talk about, wait a minute, what do we mean by love here? You know, we need to extend grace to each other because we're both going to mess this up. He says, what is our responsibility to forgive when there's not been true repentance? We sort of dealt with that already. And, and we could actually do a whole theology study on that issue if, if we're going to be fair. But the next part is, is the sort of follow-up somebody else had, which is, are we even able to discern godly sorrow and true repentance? Um, the, the short answer to that is no. You don't know what someone's heart is. No. That's the short answer. You can't know if they're, if they're having godly sorrow and true repentance. The, the only thing you can look at is, um, is the fruit of their repentance. That's it. Um, but you, you're not, again, you're not forgiving conditioned on the fruit of the repentance. Yep. You're forgiving at the, at the point of repentance. And um, you say, but what if they do it again? Is it true repentance if they do it again? Could be. Might not be. I don't know. Um, Jesus, when he says 70 times 7, he's assuming people are going to do it again. Yep. Right? And he's still calling it Repentance. So um, is it possible that you can repent and still do it again? Yes. I, I don't know about you, but I repent of things all the time I still do again. <laughs> Me too. I think I'm sincere in my repentance. Maybe I'm not, and on that great day I'm in trouble. Well, I hope not, but, you know, we'll all find out, right? So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's the best you can do is look at the fruit of their repentance, but at the at the but you don't wait for that before you start down the road of reconciliation when repentance happens. You don't wait for it. So, um, Today you talked about falling on your sword. I knew this one was coming. <laughs> for reconciliation to take place. How is this repentance and reconciliation? That's, that's a great question. Um, when you, what I mean by falling on your sword is, is what Jason meant when he was talking about um, being the example. Now, he, he sets the example and trains Kristen. Um, I don't say that because otherwise in the car on the way home, we'd have conflict. <laughs> yeah. And after you're solved. We, we <laughs> but, probably will. But yeah. Who knows? No. But uh, the... Um, Should have thought that the, through before yeah, I said it a awesome. little bit more. Awesome. Yeah. I'm not uh, training my wife, guys. Don't worry. Yeah. I'm leading Model. by example. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm just saying that. <laughs> The, uh, <laughs> Here, here's what I meant by fall on your sword, is what he meant actually in that very good illustration that he was giving, is, or, or explanation he's giving when he says, you, you lead by example. And you don't go apologizing for your sin and repenting for your sin on, on the condition that maybe they'll re- reciprocate. I've got to tell you, there have been multiple times um, 
where I have sought reconciliation with people, yeah. and, and there are people in my life around you, I can tell you, I, by the grace of God, I'm a person who pretty, pretty um, aggressively seeks reconciliation. I just always have been, uh, by the grace of God. And so I pretty aggressively seek reconciliation when, when fallout happens. And um, I've had to go into, relation, into situations where I've met with people, and it's happened to me numerous times where I've met with people and said, here's the sin I committed against you. Here are the things I did. Not here are the things I did because here are the things you did. Right. Right? This is hat in hand falling on your sword. Here are the things I did because I'm a wicked person. Right? I didn't do these things because you're a wicked person, although that's true too. <laughs> I did them because I'm a wicked person and because that's where my heart often is. My heart is often in a bad place. And, you, you know, you may, that person may have provoked me, they have may have done all sorts of horrible things that that caused or that caused that led to me responding sinfully. But at the end of the day, the cause of that sin was my own heart, hmm. and so I have to walk in and take responsibility for my own heart and my own sin. Hmm. Which means I sit there and I don't point I don't point blame at them. I don't point out how they provoked me. I don't point out how they they led to anything. I sit there and say, here are the ways I sinned against you, hmm. and I was wrong and I was sinful, and I was self-protective, and I cared about myself and not you, and I cared about myself and not the Lord, and, um, and that's because of the kind of person I am. I'll probably do it again to you. I'll try not to, but I probably will, because I'm a pretty disappointing person, and think, thank God Jesus isn't. Hmm. But, but that's, that's where I am. I've done that numerous times and had the person sit there and look at me and go, thank you very much, I forgive you and not say anything back, hmm. right? When, I'm going to tell you, in numerous occasions, I was not the prime sinner in that relational situation, that conflict. I, wa I responded poorly, but I was not the, prov the provoker. Hmm. But it didn't matter. I had to take my sin, and they never responded. Now, are we reconciled? Um, not in the sense that I trust them, but in the sense that they trust me, we are. Um, as far as it depends on me, you know, or as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We're reconciled in the sense that, I'm, that they think that we're at peace, um, and I'm at peace with them in as much as I can be, but do I entrust myself to them again if, if they don't recognize that they've done bad? No, I don't. So I have a, a different sort of relationship than I would like to with some of these people, but as far as they're concerned, things are hunky-dory because Chad knows he's a big, fat sinner, right? And, uh, and that's, 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 all three of those statements are correct, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, you know, and that, so anyway, that's, you, you guys follow me on that? That's what you do. That's what I mean by fall on your sword. Sometimes they'll respond and they'll say, you know, like Kristen does after Jason's done training her. I'm sorry, Jason, I did this too, right? <laughs> Thank Can we God edit for this? your example. Can we edit this? Yeah. We? <laughs> you know, so <laughs> just me. so we all knew what you meant. I'm gonna have kids someday, and they're gonna listen to this. <laughs> we and go, all, yeah, we Mom, all knew. Daddy trains you. Yeah, we all knew what you. We all knew what you meant. Yeah. Um, but the point is, is that that sometimes they respond in kind, and sometimes they don't. Yeah. That's what I meant. You seek reconciliation. You don't always get it. Yep. But you ought to always seek it. My responsibility for the Lord is I seek it. Um, I, I'm not responsible for how the other person responds. I'm responsible for what I do. You guys follow that? That's hard. I tell you, it's hard to fall on your sword. Yeah, it is. Is it true forgiveness if we cannot trust someone slash a friend after reconciliation? Yeah. Can be. It may take time to rebuild trust. Yep. Just because you forgive and reconciliation begins doesn't mean trust doesn't take time to rebuild. It takes, yep. Take a long, a long time. time. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, the adultery one is the clear, cleanest and easiest one to give you. Um, if, a, if, a, if a spouse commits adultery, you can forgive, you can reconcile, but you may not um, trust that person when you see them walk out of the house on the cell phone talking outside in the backyard without you around. Yep. Right? You may not. You may not trust that person when they say, I'm going to be at work late tonight. You may, you guys, you guys follow that? It may take a long time before that trust is rebuilt. Um, so, so reconciliation doesn't mean become a stupid person. 
right. and just think, well, they'll never do it again. They're not that kind of person. Well, clearly they are. They just did it, right? And so now you've got to say, and clearly I am. This is why we, there's, there's, there's a way in which you can reconcile and forgive and still have to reestablish trust over time. But you better start working to that. I think the issue is, is that yeah. forgiveness doesn't happen when you keep holding it against them, when you keep slandering with regard to their reputation to other people, when you keep bit, you know, being bitter about it or throwing it back in their face. That's not particular, that particularly forgiveness. And so you're a year later and you go, and your husband sins in some way and you go, well, that time you cheated on me, remember that? What about that? Wait a minute, you already forgave me for that. Why are, why are we um, back throwing that in my face? Not, why are you still hurting over that? I would expect you would be a year later. Yep. But why are you throwing it back at me in conflict? Do you guys follow the difference between those two things? Okay. Um, anyway. What, did you have a question that was in addition to that, Jay? Nope. Okay. That said, let's... Um, why don't you pray and yeah. we'll close? I mean, praying you guys can get out of here. What's next week, by the way? Life with a disappointing spouse or something? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Actually, it's intimacy and sex. So, oh, yeah. There you go. There you Melanie's go. Melanie's all in favor. You need to get married soon, Melanie. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 7. So, 1 Corinthians 7. Marriage I'm glad you said that because yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not going to be explicit, but we're going we're gonna to be frank and honest about it. So, if you prefer your kids not to be in here, I recommend that they don't be. Um, so we're going to talk about intimacy and, and sex next week. But that's not about technique. No, 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 no. Nope. Just so you understand, it's not, it's not be, about explicit geez. stuff. Yeah. We're talking about the biblical understanding of it. So very different. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk about stuff more important than all that. Way more important. Than Way all more that. important. Let me pray. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your grace to us and the fact that we get to interact with each other and, and learn um, and grow together. Lord, we're thankful for your patience towards us because none of us um, repents or forgives the way um, that we should. And so we're thankful that you are patient towards us and that we get to, to grow in grace together. We pray that we would approach these things as a community and not just as individuals, and that as we focus on the grace that you've shown us in the gospel, that we would be a gracious people who rejoice to forgive each other, um, even when that's painful for us and um, that we would we just move forward together in this and be a community that does forgive and uh, make a, a consistent habit of repenting of our sins against each other. So we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Have a good night, you guys.